Lord Jesus, we pray that your words would go forth in power, not mine, but yours, and that it would be to the edification of your saints, that this would change us, that this would not be just some sort of knowledge that gets poured into our head, but that goes into our hearts and transforms us. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. All right. Everybody surviving the cold? (laughs) Okay, this morning our gospel travelogue continues. You might have noticed a shift this morning in the reading. Uh, Things are beginning to heat up in Palestine. Something is on the rise and the disciples are taking notice. Jesus is beginning to set the stage for his passion in earnest. He's turning his face towards Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And he's again reminding the disciples what triumphal looks like. Humility, the way up is the way down. He's getting more specific about where he's headed. And the closer they get to the cross, the more specific and descriptive Jesus becomes. I want you to hear the first three or four verses that precede our passage because they set the context. And remind, as we go through this passage, I just want to remind you that these came right before it. So when uh, James and John asked this question, you need to be a little shocked. You should be. This is what immediately precedes it. This is Mark 10, 32 through 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, i.e. the cross, with Jesus leading them, underscore. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen how specific this is. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, Romans, who will spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is the third time Jesus has spoken of his passion and resurrection. The fourth, if you count uh, the transfiguration with uh, Peter, James, and John. The disciples still fail to grasp this, as we will soon see. They know something's on the rise, but they're still missing the big picture uh, big time. So exhibit A is our gospel passage this morning, Mark 10. 35 through 45. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them with you. Uh, James and John, aptly named the Sons of Thunder, throw out an audacious and absolutely ridiculous offer. I find this makes Peter look timid and shy, uh, which is quite a feat. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus, we want a blank check. Give me a blank check. Now, we've all approached God like this sometimes, right? The gumball theology. I put on my spiritual token, right? I pray and I ask, and you're obliged to answer, hopefully, how I want you to. Their audaciousness kind of reminds me of the demand the prodigal son makes of the father. Why don't you give me my share of the inheritance? Now, you don't get this until the father dies, of course. So literally, this is like saying, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have my inheritance than you. Way out of line. So it's audacious in a, in a similar way. Now, if the question itself wasn't absurd enough, remember the timing. What did we just read before here? Timing is everything. Jesus more or less just said, here's the path I'm going to take, guys. And it goes straight through suffering, death, and humiliation the way of the cross. He lays it out for him, And yet this question comes right on the heels of it. It's crazy. But Jesus entertains their ask, as ridiculous as it is. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus' questions are always sort of an invitation, a deeper doorway into revealing people's hearts. And so they ask their question. And then it really gets interesting, I would say. Uh, Let us sit at your right and your left when you come in glory. Okay? Uh, Now, i got to give them a little credit, and I mean a little, not a lot. Uh, They've heard something of what Jesus has been telling them about the path of the cross, but evidently only the glory part. Okay? Okay? 
<laughs> There's no crown without cross, as they're soon going to learn. This is cart before horse syndrome. But they do recognize that glorification awaits Jesus. Maybe they think they're going to join in his royal rule, perhaps, sit at his right and his left. That's certainly the imagery. And maybe they're trying to capitalize on that. I think they are. And ironically, although the request is wrongly motivated, it does denote some sense of faith in Jesus to establish his kingdom. Now, the most charitable interpretation I can come up with as I look at this story is this. Uh, the transfiguration, I think, is still fresh in their minds, perhaps. And they want Jesus' assurance that they have a special place with him. Okay? Who's the greatest? That was back in Mark 9. <clears throat> this just might mean, Jesus, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite? So there's ambition and insecurity here in equal measure. There's something they're trying to secure and grasp at that is not theirs. They want some special assurance from Jesus. Now, there's an irony in their request in that at Jesus' moment of triumph on the cross, who was on his left and his right? Two criminals, two crucified criminals, two terrorists to the Roman state. So the sons of thunder, <laughs> they really have no clue what they're asking for here. Not in the least which Jesus is going to basically say, you don't know what you're asking. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes here, okay, as a character in the story. Think of this, their selfishness and their ambition coming at a time like this, after what he's just told them, when his mind is full on all that lays ahead at Jerusalem. Do you think this cut Jesus to the quick? If it were me, yes, absolutely, ouch. But his rebuke here with them is honest and tender. He could have reproved them without mercy, without patience. That's what I personally would have done. He goes a different route. You don't know what you're asking. Okay, guys, are you able to drink from the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Gulp, it's a tongue twister. What does Jesus mean here? What's he talking about? He's pulling from the Old Testament here. Cup and baptism are Old Testament pictures and images at this point, and generally they're not really positive ones. Generally speaking, when you speak of being baptized or the floodwaters coming over you or drinking from a cup, it's usually about judgment and wrath and suffering. Uh, let me speak about the cup first. The cup often carries with it a sense of personal destiny, okay? Your cup, your personal destiny, but it can go in two very different directions, okay? Here's, here's the spectrum. One, as I said before, suffering and wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, okay? There's that. The other end of the spectrum is joy of salvation. Think of uh, Psalm 23, 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is the cup of salvation, the abundant grace that God pours out on us. To give you a gospel, gospel example, excuse me, Jesus explicitly uses cup in the first sense of suffering and, and wrath and judgment when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this what pass from me? Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done, Father. So that's cup, different, two very different meanings there. Baptism, let's speak about that, is another way of, un, of describing undergoing the wrath or judgment of God. Now, let me explain this. We're talking Old Testament here, okay? It's often seen in terms of being overcome by floodwaters or seawaters, right? Baptismal imagery of being overcome, going into the depths. This is Psalm 69. And the purpose of this kind of baptism, if you think of Noah, was purification, okay? Washing away wickedness. That was the purpose. So baptism here is a symbol of being washed of sin and being made clean, which we know it is that. 
But even so, even in the New Testament symbolism of it, you go down in the waters to die to self in order to be raised up with Jesus. Now, a little interesting side note, which really isn't a side note. It applies to what we're talking about here. Why was Jesus baptized? If baptism is about being made clean, being purified, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? Any sins he needs to take care of? Anything? To see you have some sins, some closet sins we just don't quite know about? No. No, he didn't, he didn't need cleansing. He didn't need purifying. Jesus' baptism by John is a symbolic way that God shows us that he takes on the judgment of sinful humanity. He takes on our stuff. He shows his solidarity with us in doing this. And it's his way of saying, I'm in your corner. Uh, the scripture says that he did it to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to satisfy the law. Jesus had no need of that cleansing, but we do. And so he does it for us. He does it to fully identify himself with humankind. So disciples, can you drink from this cup? The full measure of humanity's sins to the dregs. Can you do that? Can you be baptized with the waters I'm baptized with? Can you kill death by offering yourself one perfect sacrifice? Can you wash away people's sins? The very least, the cup and baptism here remind us that we were bought with a price, with what was most precious to God the Father, his only begotten Son. And they remind us that there's a cost to following Jesus. The servant will be like the master, as we shall soon see. In this life, you will have troubles, persecutions. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So, uh, James and John, can you drink from this cup and be baptized as I've been baptized? And they say, we're able. Oh, we can. Now, do they know what they're saying yes to? No. Jesus says, you don't know what you're saying yes to. He's already answered this for them, uh, if they'd listened carefully. We can. They think they know what they're saying yes to, they don't. Not at all. And Jesus goes on to say, yeah, you will drink from this cup. You will be baptized in the way that I have. And I think he's speaking to them on two different levels here. I think there is, if you remember what I just said a minute ago, this element of wrath and judgment and suffering. Hold that over here. And then joy of salvation. I think he speaks on both these levels to them. And here's what I mean. In one sense, there's no way they can follow him to Golgotha. They can't drink his cup. They can't take on his baptism. Even if they follow him and suffer physically as Jesus did, sit at his right and his left like the two thieves, they cannot humanly bear the weight that Jesus does. Bearing the judgment of the sins of the entire world, past, present, future, being separated from God the Father, the face turned away, forlorn, beyond forlorn. Even if the sons of thunder can follow Jesus all the way to Golgotha, their journey is infinitesimal compared to the road that Jesus walks. They, i.e. we, only drink a small portion of what the Lord Jesus did. We do partake in his sufferings. I think that's part of the point here. And it's a privilege. But we have largely been shielded from that. We can't drink the full cup. Securing salvation is beyond our reach. Thanks be to God. Because of his passion, here's the second part, okay? So that's the wrath, judgment, suffering portion. Let's speak to the joy of salvation part, this other level Jesus is talking to them on. Because of his passion, we drink from a different cup. We drink from the cup of joy and salvation. It's been transformed, right? His suffering has become our joy. This table we celebrate every week reminds us of that very thing. His death means our baptism is now unto life. It isn't the waters overcome us, and that's the end of the story. That's not it. We're brought up into life. He transforms the cup of suffering and baptism for us. 
when you are given the communion cup, what often do you hear? The blood of Christ, the what? The cup of salvation, right? When you're baptized, you die to self, but you're raised to life in Christ. His suffering becomes our joy. Wrath and judgment are transformed into joy and salvation. So do you see the progression, the transformation here? Tell me that you do. I'm going to take that as a yes. <laughs> uh, verse 40. Uh, okay, guys, this is about the sitting at the right and the left, but to sit at the right and the left, that's, that's not for me to grant. And he goes on basically to say, those are spoken for. God the, deter God the Father has determined all that. The thing I want us to get out of this is here is a picture of the Son in living submission to his Father. Jesus voluntarily accepts this position of sonship. There's a willing relinquishment, a laying aside of his divine rights and a taking on of our full humanity. Jesus could have rightfully called down a legion of angels to save him, but he doesn't. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. You want to drink from my cup? Be baptized in my life? Well, he's, he's telling us something here. Humility, submission, servanthood, sacrifice, the way up is the way down. Okay, that's verse 40. 41, back to the disciples. Predictably, the other 10 don't fare much better. They find out about what James and John are up to, and they're pretty ticked off. Uh, and there's a sense of righteous indignation here. Uh, they're crying foul because they've been outflanked. <laughs> okay? They want the same thing, and we can understand their ambition. So Jesus summarily rebukes the two and the ten at once and brings them back to the same themes we've heard in the last few chapters in Mark. If you want to leave my church, get low, get small. If anyone would be first, you must be last. You must be the, the servant of all. So don't button line. Don't seek the first spot. Don't jockey for pole position. Accept what comes instead from God's hand, as Jesus did. So this is, again, this picture of submission, right? Getting low. Love that phrase. Uh, verses 42 to 44, uh, Jesus then lays out the true nature of authority, okay? You want to know how to lead, guys, disciples? There are two paths, okay? There are two kinds of authority. There is the way of power, worldly, earthly lordship. You know about the Gentiles, okay? You know how their officials dominate them, literally lord it over them is what the text says. An exercise of power and might to subdue and rule, that's the way of the world. You know that way. You can conquer and create fear of retribution and will to power. You can do all that stuff. That's one path. But he says, but not so. Not so with you. Biblical authority to lead, you must follow. And we're back to that same issue that plagued the disciples back in Mark 9 when they argued about who's the greatest. That theme kind of has burbled up yet again. Now, where does Jesus' authority come from exactly? I would submit, pun intended, from his submission to the Father, verse 40. Okay, Jesus' authority comes from his submission to God the Father. And look at what follows here in verses 43 to 44. Disciples, instead of being like the world, here's where you're called to be. Servants, diakonos. If you think that's where we get the word deacon from, gold star. You're right on. It says it invites them to be servants, diakonos, and slaves, doulos. You've probably heard that word too. And these are people, these are those who invite and welcome others into the Father's house on behalf of the great host himself. That's a lot of what servants and slaves did, was run the, 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 the household humble and submitted to their master. So we're back here again at those wacky upside-down kingdom values. We're back here at downward spiritual mobility. Now here's an aside. It isn't quite an aside, but kind of is. Um, 
There is a gift of spiritual authority and living under biblical authority, a joy in serving, a freedom in submission, which is paradoxical. I can say that I've learned more about spiritual authority being an Anglican priest and being under bishops than I have in any other context. And when those men and, and women in different contexts are submitted to the Lord, uh, and you're submitted to the Lord too, it's a beautiful thing, okay? There's something about living under biblical authority that is beautiful. Receiving the places God has assigned you to serve, okay? But I will say, beware Christian leaders who refuse to be accountable. <laughs> Please beware. If they won't submit themselves to anyone, red flag, folks. Okay, back, back on the highway. Off, that, that's enough of an off-ramp. That could be another sermon in and of itself, but I'm not going to go there fully this morning. Um, final verse, uh, verse 45. For even, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is a big verse. It might be the best summation of the gospel in one verse that I even know of. Being a servant and a slave, loving your neighbor, is fine and good, as is being selfless, but don't you find similar virtues in other religions, right? To be selfish, we see this in other places. Here's where the Christian faith differs. This concept of ransom. Ransom. This is one of the pictures of salvation in the New Testament. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1.18 for you. Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Ransom, okay? There's Old Testament connections too. You might have heard it in our Isaiah reading, okay? This theme of the Son of Man, the suffering servant, you find it in the Psalms, Ezekiel, Daniel, as I said, Isaiah. There's Old Testament echoes linked directly with this great ransom that Jesus is speaking of here. Ransom in the Greek, Litron, indicates that when Jesus dies, something happens. It does something. It brings about a release, okay? It means the buying back of people from slavery or out of prison. That's what ransom's about. So to put it in more modern day terms, something we understand, what do you pay a kidnapper or a hijacker? They leave a what? A ransom note. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? You pay a ransom. You exchange money or whatever it is they want for the life of this person. In this case, the ransom is the death of Jesus, the cost of redeeming us from sin and darkness, the great exchange. And it's so cool because the early church, they loved this metaphor, absolutely loved it. I racked my brain to come up with a good modern day sort of picture of being ransomed. And I came up with a film. It's not the best you'll ever see. Uh, you ever seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Um, it is, uh, it's the story basically, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm not gonna say run out and see it, it's the best movie you ever see, but it, is a cert it does provide a certain picture. Of ransom. So basically, uh, this guy who's uh, got a certain set of skills and is, you know, like a CIA operative or something like that, his daughter's kidnapped, and the whole film is him trying to find a way to win her back. Okay? So the links, and what I want you to glean from it is the links the father will go to ransom his children. He is unstoppable. He will not stop until he gets his daughter back. Okay? He'll do anything to win him back. He'll sacrifice himself. Fine, piece of cake. And he's more than capable, as he tells you in the film, and able to do this. So God brings us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and he'll sacrifice anything and everything to make that happen, even himself. Ransom, the great exchange. 
Let me give you a picture here. This is from Augustine. Augustine has this great, these many great things that he says, but one of the things that I've uh, always been drawn to, uh, he talks about how God is able to love each one of us as an only child. So how do you love an only child? With everything that you have, right? It's not, your, your interests aren't divided, what, you know, all that. The point is, God is able to love each of us as if we're an only child in his goodness. And the point is, all of us matter to God in a special way, okay? If we already know that, then we can be freed to downward spiritual mobility. We can be freed to servanthood. We can rest in him if we know this. There's no need to outflank our brothers and sisters because of ambition, because of anxiety, because of insecurity. Every member of the body of Christ is essential and valued and loved as an only child by God. And if we know this in our bones, I think we are freed up to serve, uh, well, in freedom. We can serve with the measure of grace given us. Otherwise, we're driven by that anxiety, that insecurity, that ambition, that whatever was churning in, the, in James and John and then the other 10 to want to butt first in line. So three, three questions for us here as, as we conclude. Uh, where are you called to serve? Where are you called to serve? And sort of the subtext here is, has your ambition to be first or to be noticed gotten in the way? Is it possible? Uh, Secondly, and these all are kind of getting at the same thing. You'll understand that as I go through them. Uh, What's your place in the body of Christ? What is your place? Have you found your place? Are there areas you need to lay down your rights and accept the gift and call that God has bestowed upon you and take your place in the body of Jesus? Because it's easy to covet and desire the gift and call of other people. It's easy, but that keeps us from what God is calling us to right here, right now. So let me just affirm again, every part of the body matters. Every part. Scripture is very clear on that. And your specific gift and call are needed. Okay? The church needs you. God wants you to be part of it. So what's your place in the body of Christ? Uh, Thirdly, who can you serve? And I can't utter this question without thinking of Bob Dylan. You got everybody got to serve somebody. I can't I can't go there without hearing his voice. And that's not a bad question. You're gonna have to serve somebody. So who are you gonna serve? Now I know the short answer is oh okay, Pastor Joel, but God, I'm gonna serve Jesus. Okay, yes, yes, yes. I know the orthodox answer. But let me get more specific. Who is the Lord placed in your path? To whom can you extend the love of Jesus? Okay, who is the Lord placed in your path? To whom can you extend the love of Christ? Who can you serve? Who can you serve? So friends, let us serve with the measure of grace given to us. Let us be driven by the love of God that he has for us, which is so deep, rather than by our own anxiety, our own insecurity, and our own ambitions. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.